touches on some of the other wild man legends endemic to the North Country. With a few minor exceptions, the script for this video is exactly as it appears in my book, Legends of the Nahani Valley, and contains some references to frontiersmen and ethnologists who featured earlier in the book, with whom the casual viewer may be unfamiliar. Although you can absolutely understand and enjoy this video in its entirety without any knowledge of these characters, any viewers interested in putting them into context can of course do so by reading my book, Legends of the Nahani Valley, which you can find by clicking the link in the description. Without further ado, here are the other Northern Wildmen. Enjoy. Over the years, hundreds of Wildman sightings have been reported on the Pacific coast of Alaska, the historic homeland of the Tlingit Indians. Although dozens of eyewitnesses in these various reports referred to the figure they encountered as a Bushman, evoking the Nakani of Dene Lur, some of the descriptions they furnished correspond more closely with a classic portrait of a Sasquatch, a supposed ape-man, whose coastal range, some believe, extends from California to as far north as St. Michael, Alaska. Indeed, the Nakani is not the only wild man said to inhabit the North Country. As Pierre Burton put it in his 1956 book, The Mysterious North, quote, The Mahoney, who flit through the Peel River Country in the northern Yukon, are enormous hairy giants with red eyes, who eat human flesh and devour entire birch trees at a gulp. The predatory Sasquatches of British Columbia's mountain caves are eight feet tall and covered with black woolly hair from head to foot. There are others, all akin to these. The terrible brush man of the low show in the upper Mackenzie, with his black face and yellow eyes, preying on women and children. The Weedigo of the Barrens, that horrible naked cannibal, his face black with frostbite, his lips eaten away to expose his fang-like teeth. The eight-foot, head-hunting mountain men of the Nahani. And those imaginary beings of Great Slave Lake, whom the Dog Rib Indians simply call the enemy, and fear so greatly that they must always build their homes on islands, safe from the shoreline where the enemy roam. It is likely that a portion of Pierre Burton's succinct summary of the various wild men of the Northland derives from Michael H. Mason's aforementioned chapter in The Arctic Forests. Mason began this chapter, which more broadly details the superstitions of the Dene Indians, by stating, quote, It is no easy task to write on the habits and philosophy of these most interesting and attractive people, for their most outstanding characteristic is general inconsistency. After detailing the spiritual philosophy of the 20th century Dene, which he characterizes as a blend of traditional animistic beliefs and missionary-introduced Christianity, Mason went on to describe the human-like monsters in which these people very much believed. Chief among the devils of the Gwich'in, wrote Mason, is the Tinje Rui, or Brushman. He is very tall and thin, with a black face and yellow eyes, unquote. Although some authors have lumped the Tinjirui in with the Nakani, Mason claimed that the Gwich'in made a distinction between this creature and the Mahoney, another name for the Nakani, and that they were far more terrified of the latter. Later on in this chapter, Mason briefly described a hostile, invisible wild man called the Na'in, of whom, quote, many old men living today are afraid. According to Mason, when a branch broke from a tree and landed on someone, some old Dene man would blame the incident on this mysterious creature. 
no chapter on the wild men of the north would be complete without a nod to the Kushtaka, the notorious land otter man of Tlingit folklore. The Tsimshian of Prince Rupert and Terrace BC, the Haida of the Queen Charlotte Islands, and the Nootka of Western Vancouver Island, all have their own versions of this treacherous, semi-supernatural denizen of the Pacific Northwest. According to Northwest Coast tradition, Kushtaka are small shapeshifters which can take the form of otters, humans, and human-sized ottermen. Considered to be evil tricksters, they are said to prey on those who have drowned or become lost in the woods. Sometimes these creatures save their victims before stealing their souls. On other occasions, they viciously rake at their victims with their sharp claws. Much like the Nakani and the Sasquatch, the Kushtaka is said to emit a high-pitched whistle, alternating from low to high. In 1953, a mysterious book entitled The Strangest Story Ever Told was privately published in New York under the name Harry D. Culp. The book's preface stated that the author had been dead for several years, but that the manuscript he put together was edited and submitted for publication by his daughter Virginia. This story ostensibly based on true events, describes a race of hairy wild men whom some believe might be the Kushtaka. The book is divided into seven chapters, each of them revolving around a particular stretch of wilderness inland of Thomas Bay, a small inlet situated northwest of Wrangell, Alaska, not too far from the mouth of the Stikine River. Locals sometimes refer to Thomas Bay as the Bay of Death on account of a massive landslide which swept through it in 1750 wiping out an entire Tlingit village and killing over 500 of its inhabitants. In the first chapter, the narrator claimed that he was one among four bankrupt prospectors who shared a cabin at Wrangell, Alaska in the early 20th century. In the spring of 1900, one of the four returned to the cabin with the happy news that he had met an Indian with a chunk of gold-bearing quartz in his possession and that the Indian had given him directions to the place where he had found it. He told me to go up to Thomas Bay, the prospector informed his partners, and camp on Patterson River on the right side, travel upriver for about eight miles, and then turn to the high mountains, and after traveling about a mile and a half, I would find a lake shaped like a half moon. It was there that the Indian claimed to have found his prize. The prospectors decided to pool their money together and secure an outfit for Charlie, the man who had returned home with the good news. Charlie was to head into the wilderness beyond Thomas Bay, and see if there was any truth to the Indian's tale. That May, Charlie set out for the northerly diggings. In the meantime, the narrator and the other two partners found work in a sawmill and began to save up money for a grub stake in the hope that Charlie's preliminary expedition would prove fruitful. Things went along until the first part of June, Culp wrote, when, on a Sunday in the late afternoon, we all being home, and in walks Charlie without a coat or hat, and looking as if he'd been through hell. He didn't give us any greeting whatever, just heaved a piece of quartz over into a corner of the room and said, get me something to eat, I'm all in and want to rest. The fellow looked it, and after he had eaten, he turned in without telling us a thing about his trip. The quartz piece that Charlie brought home was heavily streaked with gold, much to his partner's delight. Despite the unbridled enthusiasm that took hold of his colleagues, Convinced as they were that they were now on the verge of a major strike, Charlie spent the next few days acting very strangely. He seldom spoke, 
refusing to answer his partner's many questions, and occupied himself with hard manual labor from dawn to dusk. Finally, Charlie returned to the cabin one day and asked his partners to lend him enough money for a steamboat ticket to Seattle. He was finished with Alaska, he said, and wanted to leave the North Country for good. He agreed to tell his partners about his experience in Thomas Bay, but only if they promised to never remind him of it again. When the prospectors agreed to his condition, Charlie told him his story. Charlie had reached the shore of Thomas Bay four days after his departure and proceeded up Patterson River, as the Indian had instructed him. He searched everywhere for the lake shaped like a half moon, but only succeeded in locating one in the shape of the letter S. The area surrounding the lake was curiously lifeless, devoid of even the smallest game. Charlie was beginning to grow weary of the simple frontier fare he had brought with him from Wrangell, namely beans, rice, and bacon, and decided to hike over to a ridge about eight miles east of the lake, where he had heard some grouse hooting. Sure enough, Charlie found a few ptarmigan there and began to hunt them. In doing so, he stumbled upon a ledge of quartz, liberally streaked with gold. As he did not have a pickaxe with them, he used the butt end of his rifle to break a chunk off the rock, destroying the wooden stock in the process. The disappointment that Charlie felt over the loss of his rifle was overshadowed by the elation that his discovery elicited. He thrilled at the prospect of returning to the site with his partners and striking it rich. After concealing the quartz ledge with moss and detritus, Charlie climbed to the top of the ridge in order to scout for landmarks by which he might relocate his discovery. Right there, fellows, he told his partners, I got the scare of my life. I hope to God I never see or go through the likes of it again. Swarming up the ridge toward me from the lake were the most hideous creatures. I couldn't call them anything but devils, as they were neither men nor monkeys, yet looked like both. They were entirely sexless, their bodies covered with long, coarse hair, except where the scabs and running sores had replaced it. Each one seemed to be reaching out for me and striving to be the first to get me. The air was full of their cries, and the stench from their sores and bodies made me faint. Abandoning his broken gun, Charlie fled for the sea with the creatures in hot pursuit. He felt their hot breath on his neck and their sharp claw-like nails scratching at his back. Reason abandoned him, and later that night, Charlie found himself adrift in his boat with no clear memory of how he managed to get there. Cold, hungry, and crazy for a drink of water, he started for Wrangle with his piece of gold-streaked quartz. The following five chapters of the strangest story ever told relate to the misadventures of Kolb, his other prospecting partners, and three frontiersmen of Norwegian, Russian, and Japanese descent who all went into Thomas Bay Country for one reason or another. Aside from the location in which they take place, these stories are united by, as cryptozoology pioneer Ivan T. Sanderson put it in his commentary on the book, quote, a thread of reference to hairy, stinking humanoids, unquote, as well as the temporary insanity which their, quote, overpowering and nauseating stink, unquote, appear to induce in all who encountered them. This is not just the commonplace, Sanderson continued, but now an almost invariable concomitant to all reports made by persons all over the world who say they have been in close proximity to one of these creatures, unquote. The seventh and final chapter of the strangest story ever told describes the experience of a frontiersman who established a trapline in the wilderness beyond Thomas Bay. 
When inspecting his traps, he found that they had all been sprung by a creature which left behind strange footprints, the likes of which he had never seen before. Sometimes the animal walked on four legs. At other times, it walked on only two. The trapper described the animal's hind tracks as, quote, about seven inches long and looked as if they were a cross between a two-year-old bear's and a small barefooted man's tracks. You could see claw marks at the ends of the toes, toe pads, and heavy heel marks. Between the toe pad marks and the heel marks was a sort of space where the foot did not bear so heavily on the ground, as if the foot were slightly hollowed or had an instep. The front set looked like a big raccoon's tracks, only larger. After his dog was abducted and presumably eaten by the strange creature, the trapper returned to civilization, where he related his story to Culp. He eventually overcame his fear of the mysterious animal and returned to his trap line in Thomas Bay country. The trapper was never seen again. Some of those who have speculated on the nature of the mysterious devils of Thomas Bay have suggested that they might be Kushtaka, perhaps flesh and blood animals unknown to science, or the transmogrified souls of the Klingit who perished there in 1750. Based on two separate incidents reported in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, the author of this book has decided to include another Alaskan monster in this list of northern wildmen, which one U.S. Army officer styled the Glacial Demon. The first incident took place in 1898 during the Klondike Gold Rush. At that time, rumor had it that an old Russian trail led from the shores of Prince William Sound, an Alaskan inlet situated in the shadow of the vast Valdez Glacier, located about 185 kilometers or 115 miles due east of Anchorage, Alaska, to the Yukon Goldfields, circumventing Canadian customs. Eager to avoid paying duty on their outfits at the Canadian border, about 3,500 American stampeders disembarked at this remote part of Alaska and set out in search of the trailhead. As it turned out, there was no secret Russian route to the interior. The only way through the coast mountains in that part of Alaska was over the Valdez Glacier. Prospectors who chose this route had to haul their supplies over 300 yards of sand and 6 miles of snow to reach the base of the glacier. After that, they had to ascend the icy monolith, hoisting their sleds up with pulleys. Upon reaching the windy, frozen summit of the Valdez Glacier, Stampeders ventured out onto the ice fields one by one. With steel crampons strapped to their feet, they slowly inched their way northwest, picking their way through a minefield of deadly crevasses. It would be several weeks before any of them reached the other side, where an even more dangerous obstacle, the Clutina River, awaited them. Some of the gold seekers who hazarded this so-called all-American route to the Klondike were buried in avalanches. Their bones still lie trapped beneath the snow. Other unfortunates plunged through thin ice and plummeted to their doom, disappearing down bottomless black crevasses. Those who avoided these fates faced a myriad of physical and mental tribulations on their journey over the glacial plain, enduring extreme exposure, severe sleep deprivation, and countless hours immersed in an unearthly white fog. They did most of their traveling at night, when the ice was solid enough to bear their weight. In the day, when they weren't trying to sleep, the sun reflected off the snow and ice, causing many prospectors to go snowblind. Due to the harsh conditions, stampeders were unable to thoroughly cook their food, 
and many survive their journey over the Valdez Glacier by subsisting on half-frozen, half-cooked meals. Many who failed to turn back, too stubborn to abandon their folly, slowly descended into insanity. Really? In the spring of 1899, a man named W.R. Abercrombie, a captain in the U.S. Army's 2nd Infantry Regiment, was dispatched to the Valdez area in order to report his findings to the War Department. That April, the officer reached Port Valdez, a town that had since sprang up on the shores of Prince William Sound, the site of present-day Valdez, Alaska, where he encountered a ragged band of stampeders suffering from snow blindness, scurvy, and frostbite. Mm. These prospectors had just returned from the ice field. After interviewing them, Abercrombie made the following entry in his report. Quote, I noticed in talking to these people that over 70% of them were more or less mentally deranged. My attention was first directed to this fact by their reference to a glacial demon. One big raw-boned Swede in particular described to me how this demon had strangled his son on the glacier. His story being that he had just started from 12 Mile Point, a collection of huts just across the coast range of mountains from Valdez, with his son to go to the coast in company with some other prospectors. When halfway up the summit of the glacier, his son, who was ahead of him hauling a sled, while he was pushing behind, called to him saying that this demon had attacked him and had his arms around his neck. The father ran to the son's assistance, but as he described it, his son being very strong, soon drove the demon away, and they passed on their way up toward the summit of the Valdez Glacier. The weather was very cold, and the wind blowing very hard, so that it made traveling very difficult in passing over the ice between the huge crevasses through which it was necessary to pick their way to gain the summit. While in the thickest of these crevasses, the demon again appeared. He was said to be a small, heavily built man, and very active. He again sprang on the son's shoulders, this time with such a grasp that, although the father did all he could to release him, the demon finally strangled the son to death. Oh, the old man then put the son on a sled and brought him down to 12 Mile Camp, where the other prospectors helped bury him. During the recital of this tale, the old man's eyes would glaze, and he would go through all the actions to illustrate how he fought off the imaginary demon. When I heard this story, there were some 10 or 12 other men in the cabin, and at the time, it would not have been safe to dispute the theory of the existence of this demon on the Valdez Glacier, as every man in there firmly believed it to be a reality. Although Captain W.R. Abercrombie suspected that the glacial demon described by the Swedish Stampeder was nothing more than a delusion brought on by scurvy, a fascinating article written by a prospector named Frank E. Howard, which appeared in the March 1909 issue of the Alaska Yukon Magazine, suggests that there may have been some truth to his tale. In the article, Howard described an incident which took place during a prospecting trip that he made in the early 1900s. While camping alone off the shores of Yakutat Bay, located on the Alaskan coast, roughly halfway between Port Valdez and Juneau, Howard decided to explore the nearby Malaspina Glacier, the largest Piedmont glacier in the world. Howard ascended the glacier through a crack in the ice and began to make his way over to a distant ridge. On the way, he lost his footing and slid into an open crevasse. Although he did not sustain any major injuries from the fall, which found him wedged between the fissure's narrow walls, Howard was unable to climb out of the slippery chasm and decided to follow it deeper into the ice, hoping that it would lead out into the bay. As I kept going ahead, Howard wrote, I noticed a gradual increase of light, and in a few more steps, I stood in a broad wall of blue light that came down from above, and looking up, 
I saw there was no clear opening to the surface, but objects were now revealed some distance around. Then, an object rose slowly out of the glimmer and took form. A spectral thing with giant form and lifelike movement. The object rose erect, a goliath in the shape of a man. This glacial being had a small head, narrow shoulders, and abnormally wide hips. It growled a challenge, and suddenly Howard was, quote, engulfed in a rank indescribable odor, unquote. Petrified, the prospector desperately searched for an escape route, the hairs of his neck standing on end. Before he could make a move, however, the creature slinked away, eyeing him, quote, with a slant-wise glance, as it vanished into the gloom. His heart hammering in his chest, Howard continued deeper into the crevasse and found an exit about 50 feet away, which opened up onto a timbered beach. Since my miraculous encounter and escape, he wrote, I often attempt to solve the mystery that still enshrouds the apparition of the glacier. Terror might have magnified my imagination, but the apparition was not the imagination of an overbalanced mind. I am thoroughly convinced I saw something. It was not like any animal I had ever seen before. The Inuit of the far north, from Alaska to the Arctic Archipelago to Greenland, have legends about a race of primitive giants, at least twice the size of regular men, who once inhabited the lands they occupy today. They called this ancient people Tunajuk, a word with etymological ties to Tornat, an Inuktitut word denoting helpful spirits, mentioned briefly in the chapter on the evil spirit of the Nahani Valley. Physically, the Tunajuk were said to be immensely powerful, and could easily carry full-grown bearded seals on their backs. They did not live in igloos like the Inuit, but rather in circular stone pit houses roofed with whale ribs and animal skins. A simple people, the Tunajuk were said to practice a number of revolting customs. They did not usually cook their meat and preferred to eat it rotten. rotten? Tunajuk women would sometimes sit with raw meat tucked between their thighs and belly, in the hope that their body heat would hasten the decomposition process. As they did not know how to cure animal skins, bits of rotten meat and rancid fat dangled from the insides of their robes. Sometimes, the Tunajuk would sew their young warriors into maggot-infested seal skins, believing that this would somehow enhance their skills as warriors. Although the Tunajuk are said to have fought bitterly with one another, they rarely showed aggression toward the Inuit, and seemed to be deathly afraid of their dogs. In addition to their martial prowess, they were excellent hunters, who could summon game with their voices. Eventually, the Inuit began to hunt down the Tunajuk and in time, greatly reduced their number. The giants who survived these predations fled to the mountains of the interior, where, some say, their descendants still linger to this very day. Some suspect that the legend of the Tunajuk derives from interactions between the Thule, or Proto-Inuit, the ancestors of the modern Inuit, and their prehistoric counterparts, the more ancient Dorset people. The ancestors of the Dorset are believed to have arrived in the Canadian Arctic around 3200 BC, when the Thule people spread west from the Bering Strait and onto Dorset territory in the 12th century AD, the Dorset were dying out, unable to cope with the climate change which characterized the medieval warm period. By 1500 AD, the Dorset are believed to have vanished completely. In 1955, American writer Kathleen Sherman and a handful of scientists visited Bylot Island, a polar isle situated just north of Baffin Island, 
Baffin Island being the largest of its kind in the Arctic archipelago. It was on this island, the Inuit maintained, that a band of Tunajuk once lived in ancient times. Sherman, who described the experience in her 1956 book, Spring on an Arctic Island, reported finding a cluster of circular mounds, which proved to be large stones half buried in the permafrost. Some scientists among the group found whale bones and other stones in the vicinity of the structures, and concluded that these large stones had once served as the foundations of crude houses, dwellings evocative of the stone pit houses of the Tunajuk. Sherman and her companions were baffled as to how the ancient builders of these structures managed to haul the huge foundation stones, which were not of local origin, from their source. An Algonquian legend which made its way to the North Country from the Great Lakes region by way of the Cree, the story of the Wendigo, or Weedigo, is another northern tale containing wild man elements. According to some interpretations of the legend, the Wendigo is a ravenous man-eating giant which roams the northern forests in search of human flesh. Ojibwa storyteller Basil H. Johnston included a colorful description of this corporeal version of the Wendigo in The Manitou, his masterwork published by the Minnesota Historical Society Press in 2001. The Wendigo was gaunt to the point of emaciation, its desiccated skin pulled tightly over its bones. With its bones pushing out against its skin, its complexion the ash gray of death, and its eyes pushed back deep into the sockets, the Wendigo looked like a gaunt skeleton, recently disinterred from the grave. What lips it had were tattered and bloody. Unclean and suffering from separations of the flesh, the Wendigo gave off a strange and eerie odor of decay and decomposition, of death and corruption. Another version of the Wendigo legend has it that this entity is not a physical creature, but rather a malevolent spirit associated with the north, the cold, and starvation. During the winter months, it roams throughout the wilderness in search of human hosts. Indians who engaged in cannibalism made themselves especially vulnerable to Wendigo possession. When a person became possessed by a Wendigo, they gradually developed an insatiable appetite for human flesh which drove them to butcher and eat their fellow tribesmen, even when other food sources were readily available. Philip Godsell described this phenomenon in his introduction to the June 1946 issue of the Alberta Folklore Quarterly, saying, quote, The Weedigo, I might explain, is an evil spirit that enters the body of a sick man, converting him, unless he is destroyed, into a cannibal, endangering the lives of every member of the band. Hardly a spring goes by, but some wandering band of nomad hunters becomes obsessed with the idea that there is one of these cannibal spirits haunting the outskirts of the camp, anxious to become domiciled within the person of some sick Indian. One famous case of suspected Wendigo possession occurred in central Alberta in 1878. That winter, a Plains Cree trapper named Swift Runner slaughtered, cooked, and devoured his wife and six children. When the Northwest Mounted Police arrested him for his crime, he claimed that he was possessed by the Wendigo and needed to be killed before he caused more damage. The Mounties acquiesced. After trying Swift Runner and finding him guilty on seven counts of first-degree murder, they hanged him at Fort Saskatchewan, Alberta in 1879.
Another breed of northern wild man, with both physical and supernatural qualities, are the Nekadzoltara, the demonic minions of the evil spirit, which the Dene believe to inhabit the Nahani Karstlands. According to Father Julius Jeddah, in his article on the superstitions of the Tena Indians, these beings were shadowy devils that sometimes invaded Dene camps in the middle of the night. When the presence of these beings was announced by shamans, quote, a great excitement ensued, during which the whole village was upset, everyone losing his head from fright, and a fine occasion was offered to the sorcerers to do any mischief they pleased, unquote. When a Nekadzeltara adopts a physical form, it sometimes appears as a creature similar to a dragon or a whale. More often, however, it assumes the form of some sort of goblin. There are eight different types of goblins, into which the Nekadzeltara can transform, three of which resemble wild men. The first of these is that Nanela In, a hairy, long-armed creature with claw-like nails, which invades camps at night and steals fish from drying racks. Although the appearance of a Nenala Ean is considered a bad omen for adults, if the creature, quote, happens to stop near a sleeping child and pat its head, the child shall become a shaman. Another goblin into which the Nekadzoltara can metamorphose is the Yesu, or Ghastly Wolf, a hairy, long-armed, bipedal creature with lupin features, which Jeddah likened to the French loup garou or werewolf. Finally, there are the Tsantarotana, or Men of the Rocks, a form of Nekadzoltara which Jeddah described as, quote, a kind of wild men, but with all the agility of spirits, unquote. These monsters inhabited the valley of the Yukon River, and were notorious kidnappers and thieves. As was mentioned earlier in this chapter, Hundreds of Sasquatch sightings have been reported over the years on the west coast of Alaska. Many eyewitness descriptions of this creature are disturbingly consistent, and, when considered as a whole, paint a vivid portrait of a hairy, human-like giant, which inhabits the rainforests of the Pacific Northwest. The Sasquatches reported on the Alaskan coasts are usually very tall, extremely powerful, and tend to exude a terrible smell akin to rotten flesh or burning garbage. They appear to communicate with each other through grunts and whistles, and can sometimes be heard howling in the night. Most stories suggest that Sasquatches are friendly. Shy and reclusive, they tend to avoid human settlements. Although they may abduct people from time to time, they rarely harm them. Thanks for watching. If you enjoyed this video and would like to help support this channel, please check out my book, Legends of the Nahani Valley, which you can find by clicking the link in the description. I thought that was so good. Uh, there was one cryptid on there that I hadn't heard of, and I can't even remember how to pronounce its name. Um, when I saw it written, it just looked like a a whole bunch of letters just jumbled up and you know th thrown down onto the page but um now see that's the other thing um the reason why i'm not voting is because i have particular likes and dislikes you know as everybody does but because i'm the one that's um picking the ones that we choose that's as far as it goes for me.
you guys are the ones that are voting. And you're voting with your like and you're voting with your comments. So I, I decided that later today um, I'm going to give uh, my channel a new name. It's going to be called Chatted Up. I know that's corny, but I thought we'll do it anyway. So thanks for listening. I hope you liked that. Bye-bye.